One of the descriptions of spiritual life that most resonates for me is forgetting and remembering. And the reason I like it is because this waking up is a a remembering of what's already here. It's not like we're shining ourselves to become better or different. We're actually coming home to essence. And perhaps the best uh, way we can describe Memorial Day, some of our you know, national and international holidays, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, <laughs> is that it's about remembering goodness. So I was watching the newspapers a lot, and it was a really sad time for Memorial Day and remembering goodness and sensing so much suffering and pain, uh, so much misguided and needless suffering in a sense. I cut out one thing. uh, There's a section, autobiography is haiku in the post. How many of you read that piece? Yeah. I loved him before he ever was, and now so much it hurts sometimes. Eyes the color of green tea, soft cheeks only promise a beard. At 19 he slipped from my grasp. His friends joined frats. He joined the National Guard. They're going to college. He's going to Iraq. Barely a man, he wants to fight a war that can't be won. He's my son, the baby I bore, the child I nurtured, a proud American soldier. Each day, as he left for school, I reminded him, be kind. What do I say when he leaves this time? How do we bring it all together? Be kind. His Holiness the Dalai Lama puts it so well. He says, my religion is kindness. Forget the Buddhism, this, the that. You know, my religion is kindness. And so how do we bring that together with a a world that's caught in uh, so much strife? You know, how do we embody it and trust it when there's so much aggression and greed? And how do we trust it, this kindness, this goodness, when we know, when we're honest, how much goes on in these bodies, minds that's, that's self-centered and jealous and aggressive and hurtful and so on? How do we trust it? And, and I think that inquiry is essential because... Uh, there's, there's what I've sometimes described as our predicament. And our predicament uh, has also been named the big squeeze, is that we do have this conditioning, this very strong conditioning, whereby every day we encounter a kind of selfishness and a self-absorbedness and a how do I get more comfortable and take care of me. I mean, how many moments of our day are we trying to do things to feel better for ourselves or not feel worse? And often um, not being able to resist the judgments and the going in that trance of self-other. So that's, that's one experience. And then we intuit or we wouldn't be here, a kind of spirit or essence or soul that's kind, that cares, that's awakening. So 
the distress, and there's a lot of distress on this path, is that we intuit what we are and every day we encounter this conditioned being kind of plowing through the day doing the same old stuff, you know, the same kind of familiar cocoon of thoughts which are so neurotic and worried and anxious and, you know, kind of rolling through the day that way. So we forget. And when we forget, our identity is hitched to a sense of a small self and a separate self that needs something more, like right now is not enough, and has to protect itself. Has to protect itself. And when we're in that, that protecting and wanting, we can't viscerally experience love. It doesn't mean it's not there, but there's a kind of obscuration. We can't, we're not inhabiting the fullness of who we are. That's the forgetting. And then there's the remembering, which also happens all the time, where there's that space where there's kind of a a coming home to sensing what really matters, to, to seeing beauty and just, oh, you know, that's, that's what we are, and feeling caring, and awakeness. And when we're connected, when we're in that presence, in that goodness, there's a reverence for life. We do not hurt life. When we're at home and connected, we don't hurt life. So in some traditions this is called basic goodness and it's interesting to me that the root of the uh, Indo-European word for good or gu is, has to do with belonging. When we're awake, we sense a belonging. There's not a separateness, but we're part of a whole. So it's not like we have to be good it's like that's our nature and we forget. A very good friend of mine's writing a book right now and her book is based on interviews with war resistors. And she's, resist, she's interviewed uh, resistors from the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, Iraq, some from, she's going to go back to World War II, the Korean War. And um, she sent me an excerpt because I'm contributing to, the, to help, help her get the book out and she uh, describes an ROTC officer during the Vietnam War who woke up the day they put a rifle in his hands at boot camp shattered by what the experience meant he sat in the city square for hours and ended up writing a letter to his commanding officers here's what at 22 the second lieutenant wrote Okay, these are his words. 22 years old. I have realized that I am part of this total existence. My vision as a separate blob of protoplasm vanishes as I see more and more of the world that is like myself. To live in a brotherhood of loving is now the only real joy. It reaches the point where to be really joyful one must love uncompromisingly, indiscriminately, and without end. All my actions are now motivated by by love for my fellow man, woman, tree, squirrel, and enemy. To say my participation in the army would cause me great spiritual hardship 
would be like saying that taking away the water in which a fish lives would make him uncomfortable. Isn't that a good line? He says, that experience of not only having to kill my brother, but learning and training to hate him would crack my life consciousness beyond the point of recovery. Military service would mean my every day would be a grinding of my reasons for living into nothingness. So, just to say um, as a follow-up that this second lieutenant um, followed his consciousness, didn't go to war, and he ended up producing and distributing newspapers, resistance newspapers, from his home while still enlisted. So waking up is a direct realization of what we are, of belonging, of aliveness, of awareness, of love. And the goodness, the acting out of that is what will save our world. And it's not because we try to be good. It's because we realize that's what we are and live from it. So what I'd like to do this week and then in two weeks, because we have a guest coming in next week, is explore what it really means to trust and live from our goodness, from our natural kindness, what gets in the way, and how do we come home to that. And I thought I'd uh, take a little time for science, because it's so wonderful how Western science is now validating everything the mystics have always talked about. And it's so much fun that it's like, why not talk about it, you know? And some of you might have seen in the post a few days ago, on the front page there was an article about a study at NIH where they did brain scans of people and they showed the difference between a brain scan when somebody was uh, contemplating giving money to a charity they valued versus when they were keeping it for themselves. And what was interesting is that the, uh, when they scanned the brain, uh, the giving, the generosity activated a kind of primitive part of the brain that usually lights up in response to food or sex. And so what they've been finding is that empathy is hardwired, that caring is hardwired, that you can find it in mammals, primarily in prim- primates. But this capacity to recognize... Um, even experienced vicariously what another creature's going through is in us and is in primates and some other mammals. And it's related to emotional contagion, that when children hear other children crying, they'll sometimes start crying. When we hear somebody laughing, we'll start laughing. And the way it's been described, well, there's one story I read about uh, rats, that if a rat is being fed and at the same time it receives its feeding a rat in another right next to it gets shocked gradually it'll stop eating and it's it's not some abstract morality like oh better not eat my brother's getting hurt bad thing i don't want to be a bad rat you know i like to, i want to be a good rat you know it's not like that it's like it's very built in this sense of that's not other that distresses me so this has been um, found in, you know, neurology to be re- what they're calling mirror neurons. 
and it's been out for a while that there are these neurons in our brains that um, get activated when another's going through an experience and we can actually vicariously feel their experience. I feel you and me is the idea. And there's a story I read, somebody described the training of a puppy. He says, my friend's new puppy was sitting in her lap and suddenly gave her a hard nip. How she yells and raises her finger sternly, no, you know. The dog jerks his head back for a minute in surprise, then lunges at her again with his needle-sharp teeth, clearly having a ball. Okay, watch this, she tells me. This is what they taught us in dog training class, and this is based on these mirror neurons. She mimes crying. Boo-hoo, she weeps softly, piteously, putting her hands over her eyes and peeking out between her fingers. Boo-hoo-hoo. I'm incredulous when the dog instantly stops biting, looks quizzically into her eyes and clamors toward her face to lick it, whining in what sounds like sympathy and performing what certainly looks like an attempt to comfort her. Puppy love. One of my favorite... uh, I went at a therapist's office. This was on the wall for years that I worked with. It has a cat sitting outside a mouse hole, and the mouse is inside, and the mouse is a psychotherapist. <laughs> and the mouse is saying, don't worry, fantasies about devouring the doctor are perfectly normal. <laughs> cat looks all dejected, you know. So what they're coming up with is that there are biological and neurological grounds for this feeling of of sameness, of mutual understanding and of care and of compassion. It's built into us. And this isn't um, scientific reductionism. In a way, to take a kind of broader understanding, awareness wants to wake up through these body-minds. And these are the conditions, this is part of what's set up for our evolution, that we wake up. This is just the kind of... biological, structural component, but it's really about waking up to a larger sense of who we are. Going from this hitched sense of identity to this particular body-mind to sensing, okay, this this body-mind experiences part of it, like waves in an ocean, but we are this ocean, this awareness. So, the challenge is, as we know, that in many moments through our lives and for many people, there is not real access to this recognition of our mutual belonging, our sameness. There's not access to open-heartedness. And I think, I can speak for myself, that um, the feeling of not being open-hearted gets more and more painful as we start touching that sense of non-separation, then the awareness of feeling cut off becomes really painful. So when we look, well, how does it happen? You know, we're, we're rigged to be able to feel empathy. How come it's so often just um, mental, you know, not, not visceral? And I feel like that's a really important question. It's not enough for our compassion to be abstract, for us to read the paper about ten more Americans being killed in Iraq and go, oh, you know, that's too bad. Or read about the Iraqis whose country is just absolutely ravished. It has to be felt in our bodies 
to care in order to live from caring? What stops us? And what we know is that it's part of evolution to feel separate and not care. It's part of evolution. We get born and we have a sense of separateness and we get self-absorbed. And um, unfortunately, there can be developmental arrests in cultures and in individuals where it's not just a stage of me, me, me. It's a life of me, me, me. And of you out there, and if you're a you out there, not real, not part of me, then we can go ahead and train ourselves to hate and kill our brother. So we get arrested. And in developmental arrests, what that means is we spend most of our time being very vigilant. And the filter is something's wrong. And we're looking out for what's going to go wrong. And there's kind of a negative slant of if it's not wrong now, something's wrong around the corner. Some of you might remember this, that a a linguistics professor was lecturing to his class one day. He said, in English, a double negative forms a positive. In some languages, though, such as Russian, a double negative is still a negative. However, there's no language wherein a double positive can form a negative. A voice from the back of the room piped up, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) So cynicism can do in anything, you know. So there's these different forces that, there's different forces of conditioning. And the basic one is perceiving separation and this kind of getting arrested. They've shown in, uh, science, science has shown that when there's damage to part of the prefrontal cortex of the brain, when there's damage, there is no access to a felt sense of empathy. It's there. It's, it's, it's in our brain to feel it. And it can get cut off. If there's emotional trauma, when there's severe emotional trauma, there's a kind of singeing of the uh, kind of neural pathways between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. So again, we don't have access to the big picture. We don't have a way of opening out of that fundamental sense of threatened self. We get caught. But most basically there's a a developmental arrest when individuals in the culture, in their dance, keep on promoting the message of competition, need to have more, consume more, get more, and that there's an enemy out there. There's an other out there. And it becomes our first habit is to be suspicious. Another story I like, a woman returning from a retreat and she had to switch planes at an airport, had a little time, so she bought a cup of coffee, small package of cookies, took her paper and sat down at a table in the restaurant, and there's a man right next to her at the same table, and she was reading her paper and flabbergasted to see that he was helping herself to one of the cookies. She didn't want to make a scene, so she leaned across and took a cookie herself. A minute or so passed, more rustling. He was taking another cookie. (laughs) By the time they were down to the last cookie in the package, she was really angry but couldn't bring herself to say anything. Then the young man broke the cookie in two, pushed half across to her, ate the other half, and left. (laughs) Okay, sometime later when the public address system called her to present her ticket, she was still fuming. She couldn't believe the nerve. 
Imagine how she felt when she opened her handbag and was confronted by her package of cookies. (laughs) She had been eating his. (laughs) Now, this is not to say that everybody, we're we're misjudging everybody and everybody's benevolent and generous. It's not to say that. But it is to say we have a predisposition to move through the world and anticipate, oh, protect, protect, unsafe, they're thinking bad things. How many moments of our life are we presenting ourselves so that we can win someone over, impress, prove, protect from judgment? There's a self, a sense of I'm a self and it's not going to be okay. So I'm just bringing these up because we have forces of conditioning, biological, sense of separation, cultural, sometimes from from personal, emotional injury, that arrest us on this evolutionary pathway towards belonging, towards realizing goodness. We get arrested. It's okay. We have the equipment. In other words, there's a built-in capacity to be conscious of ourselves, mindful, and to wake up and reconnect with that natural empathy. It's built in. And the more we wake up, here's, this is really important, the more we wake up, the more it matters to us to wake up. The less easy it is to tolerate feeling closed-hearted. The more we wake up, the more we are aware of the pain of separation. And that is awareness calling us. We think it's bad. We think something is going wrong when we feel depressed or sad or this kind of angst that that life isn't... we're not aligned. And yet it's really awareness going, Yo, come home. There's love here, but you're forgetting. It's the pain of separation. And we know it because when we are present and we do feel tender, when there's a surge of care or warmth, or when there's a kind of space where there's silence and quietness and peace, there's something that feels intrinsically, this is home, this is more the truth than any of the conditioning that plays out. This is home. This is goodness, not because there's a self being good, but because in a way we've relaxed the selfing. Do you know what I mean? We've relaxed all that doing and busy and protect and prove. And in the space, when we've relaxed all that, we find revealing itself this intrinsic goodness, this care, this wakefulness. So let's just look a little more closely at how in the face of the conditioning we can stop and find that space that reconnects. And the beginning of it, and this is really what all of us, I'd say, in some different way are doing, is we're trying to notice our own particular pattern of conditioning, of forgetting. It's like the question is, what's your trance like? 
how do you go into trance? I mean, what's the story and what's the feeling and what's the chain reaction that makes you get small, that makes you think you're a not-so-worthwhile self or a superior self that's not getting what you deserve or whatever it is? What's your chain reaction? Because it's usually a chain that really leaves you kind of in a tight, small place. Because it's when we recognize that, when we start saying, okay, here's the place where I get stuck. It's what Pema Chodron calls Shempa. Here's where it gets sticky. When we start noticing the places that the who we are gets small, that's the pain of separation. That's really the place where we start discovering freedom. So we begin, and it's not conceptual, we begin to deepen our attention. In other words, we go counter to our conditioning. Our conditioning is to, uh, when we get caught and stuck, get even busier, run faster, eat more, drink more, move more, you know. Instead of that, we get interested. Oh, stuckness. Okay. So this is where the identity is hitched. Let's look. Let's look. So let's say we're feeling rejected. Okay. And we start investigating. And there's a really wonderful question, which is, well, what am I really believing right now? Then if we inquire, we find, well, we're believing maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't deserve, I'm not lovable. You know, there's some belief in there. Then we look closely and we say, well, what's really going on in my body? Well, there's fear or there's shame. And then we start saying, well, so what are the actions that are coming out of that? And we start noticing, well, we start grasping and holding on or are we, get, are we pull back and withdraw? And we start noticing the chain of reaction. And we start saying things that are distancing. So this is like we're watching in living color what's called selfing, this kind of consolidation of a self that has forgotten, that has forgotten goodness and belonging. This is the way Gandhi put it. (laughs) He probably arranged that from the grave. (laughs) or from the ashes. (laughs) Your beliefs, your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your character, and your character becomes your destiny. This is called karma. What it means is that when we're not aware of it, We have these beliefs, every one of us has them. A belief that's most fundamentally that I'm a self and I'm separate. And then usually from that, I'm a self, I'm separate and I'm not okay. I'm self, I'm separate, I'm not okay. And I have to do this, this and this to be okay. Or this, this and this is going to happen and I'll never be loved. Or whatever it is. But we have these beliefs, right? They create our entire life experience. Our belief creates 
all these thoughts of what we have to do and what we can't do and what bad's going to happen and who's going to cause that bad thing to happen. And then those thoughts, out of those thoughts we speak and we act and we recreate the very experiences we don't want. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how much we cycle through things over and over again? So the first step is we start recognizing our chain reactions, our patterns. But So it might be that we say, oh, I see that when I say out loud that criticism so-and-so is distanced from me and that creates more pain. We might see that. Or when I am anxious and I eat the third portion of Cherry Garcia, I then feel ashamed of myself and then I eat the fourth because I feel so bad or whatever. We start seeing the patterns, right? But the seeing is not enough. So we're going to take it the next step. So we're talking about how we go into trance, how we forget and become imprisoned. The waking up is to notice, but then there has to be a stopping and experiencing what's going on. In other words, not playing it out. Wherever we can in the chain of reaction, stop. Experience inside. So this is what I've been calling the sacred pause. This is where we notice what's going on and because we want to be awake more than we want to play out the selfing, we stop. We listen. We feel what is happening. This is where courage comes in. It's not enough to see our pattern. We have to be willing to pause and reconnect. What's going on? It's the disconnection. It's the disconnection that keeps us identified as a small self, that we're running. So we have to stop running. We can't have empathy for others. The mirror neurons do not do their job if we haven't connected empathically with the life inside us. So we have this inquiry here. How do we open our hearts? I mean, how many of us on some level are really wondering about that? How do I live more open-heartedly? We want to love well. We really do. The starting place, if we want those, whether we call them mirror neurons or our Buddha nature to to bloom, however we want to call it, the starting place is to see the way we're running away, the way our chain reaction's going, and pause and reconnect here, this life, this hurting heart, this feeling of uneasiness or off-balancedness, this angst. I've watched in the last year a lot for myself in my own pattern of of this where um, I've I've shared here a number of times I've gone through many, many months of feeling physically sick. And physical sickness then brings up a sense of, you know, getting depressed because where's, you know, the hope for a lot of fun and a good life if I'm sick, sick, sick. And a kind of a self-absorption. And then a feeling of bad personhood because I haven't felt as empathic or connected with others. So what will happen is I'll get to that point of that chain reaction of 
physically sick and then feeling the aversiveness and the down on self feeling and then all of a sudden there's this, oh, the pain of separation. I don't feel connected to my world. So my starting place is not to then think of the people I love and feel my connection with them. It has to be, stop. What's happening here this moment? And feeling the fear or the depression until I come so home to the unpleasantness in this body of mine that there's some space of tenderness. There's a kind of caring, like, oh, okay. See, when we're present with what's here, the tenderness opens up. And then I can pay attention to my partner Jonathan or my sister or my friends. And I'm, I'm reopened again. But the, the gateway? Always. You can't love your world unless you love what is right here. It always comes back to loving what is right here. And, and it's not like you can say, well, I, I'm not feeling well in my body or I'm emotionally this. That's the place we have to love. If we want to have that open-heartedness, if we want the mirror neurons to do their thing and if we want to feel our belonging, we have to belong to what's here. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the gateway. So we're learning to stay. And that's a lot of the practice. Stay with what's uncomfortable. But it reconnects us with presence. We open to what's here. This is Rilke. He says, I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. So let's just take a moment. I'd like to have you have a chance to sense how this is for you in your life and then we'll take it the next step, widening the circles. And as we often do, this is an opportunity for you to just check in and sense, well, where do I go into trance? And how can I maybe be a little more awake? How can I connect with my own life in the midst? So letting this be a pause. And just feel yourself arriving. Kind of relax and let your shoulders down. Feel your breath. Feel the sense of sitting here. Senses awake. And you might just sense, is there a place in your life, a situation that wants your attention, where you get caught in selfing, in a kind of small, preoccupied, reactive place? So 
So just sense if there's a situation like that, maybe in a relationship with another person where you just kind of contract, it's out of your control, you just get small or defensive or angry or or it might be a situation at work or it might be around something like I described where you get, where you're sick and there's a chain reaction that comes from that that keeps you tight. And you might let yourself go to the place in that where you feel the most stuckness. Where you feel most isolated or disconnected from others, most down on yourself, most caught. You might see if you can notice what you're believing. What are you believing about yourself? And what are the feelings that go with that belief? Just feel your body. throat, your chest, belly. Just know how, what happens when you're caught in this, the kind of ways you act. Your sense of yourself, not liking yourself. And just sense your willingness to stop or pause right now in the midst of even this reflection and just allow what's difficult to be here. You might even sense, what is it that most wants my attention about this? What's the, what's the pain or vulnerability or hurt or fear? What is it that most wants acceptance right now? You might sense that what most wants acceptance is that there's a real painful feeling of I'm not okay, I'm unlovable, I'm failing. See if you can just breathe with whatever you're experiencing right now. Maybe you feel numb and disconnected, breathe with that. Agree to feel it. If it feels really difficult, you might explore just putting your hand on your heart and breathing with and offering a kind of presence with your own touch. It's very powerful. This is part of the loving-kindness practice, really, this offering care to our own being. So you just feel maybe vary the touch so that it's really genuinely kind, tender. So just breathing with what feels difficult, feeling it, offering it kindness.
my religion is kindness. What happens if you very intentionally sense that whatever you're experiencing, you want to offer it kindness? Who are you when you're genuinely noticing and allowing and holding kindly? Can you sense the difference between the self who's either a victim or the self who's blowing it and this space of kind awareness? Just take a few full breaths and you can bring yourself back and just kind of sense yourself here. The practice of homecoming, of reconnecting, begins with reconnecting with whatever in ourselves we've been running from. That we can't love our world if we're not loving what's right here. And by loving, it doesn't mean, oh, I like this. It means tender presence, tender presence. So the heart of Buddhism is compassion. It begins with self, and if we really have that loving what is here, there's a natural widening out. I heard a story when I was in New York of a Latino woman who lost her son some years earlier to cancer when he was a teenager and there's nothing worse than losing a child and she spent several years mourning and grieving and really stayed with it and stayed with it and then after some time began leading groups for people with cancer really helping them to move through their grief and losses to help them connect back to that goodness and presence because people sometimes in their mourning, instead of really mourning, will just cut off. Just to read to you, she says, For me, the loss of my son went from a singular event to something that is woven into the fabric of my being. It is always present to me, part of my work, part of my experience. Having experienced that deep a grief, that suffering, I am no longer afraid to go back there. I've been around it and with it and come through it, and I know it very well. I have also somehow survived it. I think the people in my groups know this. They know that I'm not afraid anymore. It gives us permission to go to that place of grief or suffering, to acknowledge our losses and their deep significance, if that is where we need to go. I think it brings a kind of safety to the room. So... On this path, my religion is kindness, when we bring the kindness and presence to what's here, no matter how deep and how painful, that space of presence has room for others. This is where we begin to widen the circles. This is completely relevant to whether we can ever have peace or more healing on this earth. That if we can begin to listen and be present for our own hearts, we can do it for others. And my sense is that there's this part of this research on um, 
mirror neurons and so on has been describing how we're not rigged to do it long distance so well. In other words, if somebody's right in front of us suffering, we get it and we can feel for them. But it's very hard for us to imagine it long distance because through the tens of thousands of years these body-minds developed, the real stuff was right in front of us, not from a distance that mattered. The sirens were right here, you know. But if we think of a siren going on in another country, it's not going to stir something up in us. So part of healing the sense of otherness because we so quickly go into otherness, they're far away, the ones that are suffering or they're not like me, we need to be face to face with those that are suffering. We need to let ourselves be touched. So I want to share with you, because this has all to do with peace and and, um, healing, that there is a wonderful organization called Building Bridges for Peace. And it brings together Palestinian and Jewish teenage girls and some of you might know of it, it takes place in New Jersey in the summers and they come together for two weeks and sleep together in one big room and live and talk and so on. And you see a shift from these stories from people that had an idea of an unreal other that they could hate to empathy and belonging. I mean, it's, this is the magic. So I want to read you one of the stories. One morning, a Palestinian girl confided how soldiers had come to her home beating her family and upon discovering they were mistaken, left with no apology or offer of medical care. Using a technique known as compassionate listening, the uh, organizer, Melody, asked a Jewish girl to repeat the story in first person, then describe the emotions it had made her feel. Terror, anger, revenge, sadness the Palestinian girl burst into tears. My enemy heard me. The Israeli girl wept with her and they became fast friends. My enemy heard me. So part of the training, you know, that allows us to wake up out of this separateness is very intentionally letting ourselves be touched. In other words, bringing others to mind and feeling them here. And in Tonglen, the compassion training in in Tibetan Buddhism, there is an exchanging self for other. Just as in this story, the Israeli girl spoke the same word and says, okay, here's how it would feel. And went inside that experience. And then there was that experience of sameness, of we belong together, we're part of the same. So the conditioning we have that creates developmental arrest is this habit of seeing others as unreal others that either have something to give us or something to take from us. And the awakening, the evolution is to see past the mask of other and to really see the light and the goodness and the awareness that's here. Dalai Lama was giving a talk in Central Park a couple of years ago and he was um, comparing people who seemed different on the surface. He said he was comparing blacks and whites and Jews and Palestinians and Tibetans and Chinese and after each one he just would shrug his shoulders and laugh that extraordinary laugh and he'd go, we same. 
we same, every time, we same. I loved it because really his mirror neurons are completely full, (laughs) happening fully, you know. And that's the possibility, is to see through the mask that we're habitually looking at and see who's peering through. And it begins by sensing that we're not the masks that we tell ourselves the story of self that we're hitched to. None of us are a small self that's inadequate or failing or needing to be better. We are the silence that's listening right here. We're the awakeness that's peering through. We're the heart that wants to wake up. Just like a flower wants to bloom, awareness wants to realize itself. So we'll end tonight, if you will, with just a short reflection again, just to kind of close your eyes. And the sense this is just stopping, just stopping. So you can listen right now. Listen and feel the space in the room. And listen and feel into the aliveness of your own body and heart. And you might sense, is there anything between you and being fully, fully connected right here? Is there any way of closing off? of judging, just to notice. To feel your willingness, to feel that longing to be fully here. Connected. Rilke says, I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. We began talking about forgetting and remembering, maybe to close with a prayer of remembering. May we remember the awareness and love that's our essence.
May we trust it. May we inhabit and live from this goodness. And may all beings everywhere awaken to realize the silence and mystery and sacredness of being. May all beings everywhere be free. We'll close as we opened with the chanting of Om and let that be our shared prayer. We'll just chant it three times again. Please feel your heart. Feel that in you which longs to awaken, which longs to realize and express the truth of what you are. And inhale deeply. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.